Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come to you today. We do so in the name of Jesus. Thank you for being here when we arrived this morning. As you speak to us, I pray that we would be alert, awake, um, aware. I pray that we would hear the sound of your voice. Be merciful to me today so that it would be your voice that we all hear. Please take this time and make it special and meaningful for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Please say with me, amen. On a Wednesday evening in July of 1977, lightning struck one of those electrical generator station things 50 miles north of New York City. Fairly routine, happens, except this time when the lightning struck and the breaker opened up, it didn't close again. This was a problem, compounded by repeated lightning strikes. This tripped off kind of a series of unfortunate events which resulted in Con Edison's entire network being shut down and all of New York City was in the dark. The whole place. A massive power outage. Couldn't really have happened at a worse time. New York City was in the midst of a tremendous financial crisis. It was locked also in the grip of an unrelenting heat wave. David Berkowitz had shot 13 individuals, six of them fatally, and was still, this was son of Sam, was still on the loose. He would not be apprehended for another month. New Yorkers were distressed, and they were nervous. So in the dark, chaos ensued. Looters and vandals, cloaked in the darkness, caused mayhem. 1,616 stores were damaged or looted or destroyed. That's a lot. That's a busy night. More than 1,000 fires were reported. At one dealership, 50 new cars were stolen. One dealership. Almost 4,000 people were arrested in that one night. $300 million worth of damage was done. In today's money, that's $1.2 billion. You see, some people are more comfortable doing what they do in the dark. Secrecy provides cover. Anonymity is a form of protection, perverse protection, really. When the sun has set and the twilight has faded into blackness, that's when some people feel emboldened to do that which they otherwise would not do if the sun was shining. It's a form of nocturnal courage. One of the most famous verses, no, the most famous verse in all of the Bible was uttered in the dark. The Savior of the world had only recently begun his ministry. He had changed water into wine, and people had noticed. People were talking. And then, 
while people's mouths were moving and voices were intoning. He went to Jerusalem at the Passover, at the Passover, and emptied the temple. He emptied this magnificent structure, which not long before had been renovated by Herod the Great. It was like old MacDonald's farm in that temple, with a moo-moo here and a ba-ba there. It shouldn't have been that way. There were cash and coins changing hands as though this were Jerusalem Vegas. And Jesus went into, that, into the midst of that maelstrom of merchandise and money-grubbing and put an end to it. Tables were overturned. Lepta and denarii and drachmas were sent clattering to the ground. And men who had lost sight of the true meaning of the temple service scurried to rescue what was clearly most precious to them. The prophet Haggai had said that the glory of the second temple would exceed the glory of the first temple because the presence of Jesus would make it so. This obscure Galilean was suddenly very popular. Hashtag Jesus and hashtag trouble in the temple started trending on Twitter. A Facebook page was set up by somebody in the name of Jesus. It was deluged with friend requests. Conservative talk show hosts started criticizing this upstart while late night comedians joked that it was the first excitement the temple had seen in many years. Jesus of Nazareth was now a household name. And if that were not enough, people were now talking or would soon be talking about this outlandish claim he made when he said, destroy this temple in whatever time it takes, and in just three days, I will raise it back up again. But although there were those who were deeply offended by what he had said, there were others who were not so. There were some who were fascinated. They reacted differently. Some were driven to study the prophecies relating to the Messiah. One of those was a man named Nicodemus who had begun to wonder if this one could indeed be, as Haggai had said, the desire of all nations. Nicodemus had to talk with this Jesus. But how could he, a ruler in Israel, be seen with this this Jesus, nighttime, you know, is the friend of the stealthy. It would provide the cover he needed so he could carry out this meeting. You know how the exchange began. It's recorded in John chapter 3 and verse 2. We'll start reading there. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. This was an attempt, a not-so-subtle attempt, at righteousness by flattery. But Jesus wasn't buying it. God always knows what you need. You don't, but God does. Nicodemus needed and urgently an encounter with the very blunt truth that he was not nearly as holy as he had supposed. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a good man outwardly. He was a man of some means, certainly. 
but he had the statement in the book of James backwards. He was rich in this world's goods, poor in faith. We know that you are a teacher come from God. That wasn't a statement of faith. That was the statement of a man who was hedging his bets. This important man had to become aware of his great spiritual lack. And you know and I know that that's true for all of us. I know that you know. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, quoting from Psalm 14, There is none righteous, no, not one. Nicodemus had a problem, didn't he? He thought he was a shoo-in for the kingdom of heaven. But he is being made aware that that is not so. He was not righteous. And before we attempt, or before we attempted to look down our nose at this poor fellow, the Bible says that we are all in the same boat. It is a problem that we must resolve. For only the righteous will go to heaven. Listen, I believe it's important for us, we Christians down here in the close of time, to get it once and for all out of our heads this idea that good people go to heaven or that somehow you have to be a good person in order to please God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah wrote. That Hebrew word is anash. It means incurable. The human heart, Jeremiah said, is deceitful above all things and incurable. Nicodemus was being brought face to face with the depths of his spiritual depravity. Until we are so brought, we will never be savable. The message to the Laodicean church is a message to us. It's a message to a group of people who don't realize their spiritual emptiness. You say that you are rich and increased with goods and you have need of nothing. But you don't know. You don't know. You don't know that you are wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked. Nicodemus didn't know how bad he was. And that's true for most of us as well. Read the parable of the ten virgins. The Bible says they were all asleep. Five were wise, five were foolish, but ten slept. The message to the Laodicean church isn't just a message to the liberals. It isn't only a message to the cranky conservatives. It's a message to the entire church. You think you are better than you are. And you don't really know or realize the catastrophic nature of your condition. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what he said. Well, what does that mean? This wise man asked. Now he had moved to righteousness by stupidity. But that wasn't happening. Sorry, cuz ignorance is not bliss. We must be born again. But as Hamlet said, there's the rub. How is that to happen? The answer is found in the theme of this week's convention. Lift him up. Isn't that what we're talking about? And where is that phrase found in the Bible? Where do we find mention of lift him up? Well, you could go a couple of directions, but you don't need to even change the page you're on. It's there in that same passage as we are investigating here. 
It's another phrase uttered in the dark, but one that, thank God, has ultimately come to the light. Let's press forward. Jesus spoke and he said, except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus knew this was clear even to this man. Water baptism and conversion. Nicodemus understood, okay, I get you, I'm hearing you, but I'm not feeling you. I know what, but I don't know how. Jesus tells Nicodemus, he tells all of us, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The light is starting to break through now. There is a crack in his outer shell. Hmm, the spirit. I need to know more. It was Job who asked, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? He answered, he said, not one. We'd better figure this out because we are told that the carnal mind, the carnal mind is enmity. Not only at enmity, it is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. If I can only be a little better, if I only pray a little harder, if my faith is only just a little bit stronger, then I'll be okay. No, no, that's, that's, that's not where the solution is. The Bible says, out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, witnesses, sorry, false witness, blasphemies. That's all we are good for, Jesus tells us. But in there, there's the solution, the Spirit. Ah, the Spirit, Jesus said, the flesh, yes. But there's hope. There's hope for you through the Spirit. Listen, I believe there's a special danger for conscientious Christians. I believe there is. It is right to want to eat right. But eating right is not going to save you. The road to hell is paved with meat substitutes and egg replacer. It's right to dress right. Maybe more right now than it has ever been. But a uniform is not going to get you from here to there. It's right to worship on the right day. But you can show up on the right day and worship the wrong God. We could go on down the list. Tithing, that's the right thing to do. And it's good for you. But your money doesn't impress God one little bit. I remember being in a supermarket one day and I was holding as I stood in line a bunch of flowers, pretty flowers. And as I stood there holding my bunch of flowers in the line waiting to pay, the lady in front of me turned around and she looked at this young man holding a bunch of flowers and she said, okay, what did you do wrong? I smiled, I looked at her and I said, lady, buy enough of these and you can do no wrong. You might be able to impress your spouse once in a while, at least I hope you can. You can't impress God. Now, how many times have you read in the Bible where God speaks to us and He says, it's not your deeds I want, it's not your sacrifices I want, it's your heart I want. Micah wrote, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He answers, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. It's our heart God wants. And if God 
has our heart, then he has everything. And if he has this thing, then all others will fall into place, will be brought into line through the influence of his spirit. But Jesus went on to get very specific. Before he got to the famous John 3 and verse 16, he speaks to our theme here this year. He said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that takes us back, doesn't it? It takes us back to a curious story. And you've wondered, you've listened to that story, you've read that story, and you've said, how in the world does a snake, a snake, represent Jesus? How is that so? It takes you back to that time in the, in the book of Numbers is where it all took place. You go back, and you think, what in the world? Why did Israel get in that strife anyway before the snakes came in there and started biting them up? Because like so many in the church, there were many in Israel who had the gift of denunciation. And they were determined to use it, and they used it with enthusiasm, this very unfortunate gift. They were in the wilderness, wandering and complaining. God knew he had to get their attention. When your attention is on yourself and your own circumstances, it's in the wrong place. In fact, it's in a very dangerous place, a destructive place. God needed to help them shift their attention from themselves to where their attention really ought to have been more important things. And this is what we read in Numbers 21 and verse 6. It's a fine passage. Follow along with me. Numbers 21, starting in verse 6. They complained. They said, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there water. Get this. Get, oh boy, oh boy. This was bold. They said, And our soul loathes this light bread. Here they were in the wilderness. They were going to die. God carpeted the ground with food they just had to stumble out of their tents to get. And now they're saying, we hate this stuff. That's strong. God gave it to them for their survival. And they're throwing it back in his face. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Here we are, mortally wounded, so many of us. Terminally ill, so many of us. We're going to die. We could say the same thing, all of us, if Jesus doesn't come back soon enough. They ran to Moses, help us now. This is a crisis. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. Amen. Ask some pastors. Good pastors. They'll tell you that if this was their congregation, they might not have prayed that prayer. Finally, the complaining will end. Finally, the mean-spiritedness will be gone. Moses knew that if he prayed, God would answer his prayer. And God, Moses knew, Moses knew that if he prayed, he was going to be sentenced to more years in the wilderness with this riffraff. And yet he prayed. He prayed for the people. And how did God answer? God answered curiously, didn't he? The Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass 
that if a certain, uh, if a serpent, it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. There we have it. There's the answer. The remedy for sin, the remedy for a corrupt or a broken heart, encapsulated in those five brief verses. That's the passage Jesus referred to when he was speaking to Nicodemus that night in the dark. Nicodemus, Jesus said. Nicodemus, Jesus said. If you want to know how your corrupt heart can be made right, I'll tell you. Look back. Look back to the time of Moses. You know the story. Here's a group of dying folks. And in order to live, they didn't work. In order to live, they didn't try. In order to pass from death to life, they didn't give. Neither did they strive. All they had to do was open their eyes and turn their heads in a certain direction. They looked. And they lived. And there we have it. There's the message that comes through in the Bible again and again and again and again. To look is to live. To look with the look of faith. The look in faith to the Savior who saves. There's life in there. There was a time in my life when I came face to face with the sobering reality that I might be dying. And of course the question came to me, should I die where would I spend eternity? Well, I knew the answer. I know the answer. I said, well, if I were to die, I'd come up in the first resurrection and go to heaven. That's all I could say. But then another question came to me. What makes you so sure of that? Had to answer. I racked my brains and I, I, I went through some things and I thought to myself, I cannot say because I'm a good guy. I know I cannot say that. I know I cannot say, well, Lord, essentially my life is headed in the right direction. I think, I think that if you weighed them up, my good deeds would outweigh my bad deeds. I knew I couldn't say that because, number one, it was bad theology. And number two, God and me know my heart much better than anybody else. God better than me. And I knew that if it was a matter of my good deeds and my righteousness and my accumulated worthiness, I knew that heaven could never be mine. Never. And I thought about it in that moment. What makes you so sure that were you to die, you'd end up in heaven? And I realized right then, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Man, when you are, when you are staring it in the face like that, do you know how precious Jesus becomes to you? I realized then, Christ was my righteousness. Christ was my hope. Not my theology, not my good belief system, not my church membership. As important as those things are, as vitally important as those things are. It was Jesus I needed. And I bowed my head and thank God that this preciousness now burned within my heart. My heart, I don't have one. It was Jesus I had. In that moment, I had never been more thankful. For, I, I'd been a Christian for many years. Believed in righteousness by faith. Believed in Christ as my righteousness, but now I was experiencing the importance of it and the blessedness of it. What makes you so sure that you're going to go to heaven when the roll is called up yonder? Friend, you've got to have that same hope. Not hope in your goodness and hope in your deeds and hope in your whatever else it might be. Hope in your checklist. We can't be hoping in those things. Our only hope is Christ. Christ himself. 
Christ the person. Christ our righteousness. If you have Jesus, if you have the Christ, the Son of God, you have life. The Bible spells that out. He or she that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. There it is. It's right there. John didn't write there. Get your theology right. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm making the point. Theology is very, very important. Wrong theology, wrong Christ. But John didn't say, he that hath the 28 fundamentals hath life. When it comes to a matter of life and death, Christ is what you need. When it comes to righteousness and unrighteousness, the difference is Jesus. Jesus the man. How, how can he be? There's a story that is told that many years ago, a, a, a British dignitary came to New Zealand, a, a British war hero. And as he spoke to a group of individuals, he took his place after a speech and he sat down and various ones had the opportunity to come to the microphone. And they would come to the microphone and speak and say this and say that. Dignitary stuff, you know. Then an old fellow stood up, hobbled up to the microphone and he said, when I see Lord so-and-so, I won't name him, when I see Lord so-and-so, I see just a man. And he turned his back and started to walk away. People were shocked. What a thing to say. While they were still gasping, he turned around and came back to the microphone and he said, but what a man. And that friend is Jesus. That is Jesus. A man, yes. But what a man. To live is to look. You can thank Christ today that he is yours should he be yours? And if not, you have a very simple decision to make. There is only one place to get righteousness. And I would say this, maybe it's a matter of semantics, but let me say this. I don't believe you even get righteousness from Christ. I don't believe that. Really, if you were to press me, I would say, no, no, you don't get righteousness from Christ. I would say you get your righteousness in Christ, not from. This isn't a transaction. Thank you, I'll take that, and off you go. For separated from him, there is no righteousness. You cannot say, I went to the gas station. I got my, my tank filled up with righteousness. I'm checking the gauge. Ah, I'm still safe. Getting low. I must go back for more. That's not right. For we are to be in Christ, connected always. You don't go to the Christ station, get filled up and take off. Oh, it's getting near E now. Must run back. That's a life lived outside of Christ. That's the one who prays in the morning and then she gets up off her knees and goes her way and forgets that she even had the conversation. That's the one who reads his Bible, but he's just going through the motions. And he came to God and he opened the Word and he crammed in his two chapters that morning and off he went feeling like he'd done the right thing. But he hadn't heard the voice of God and it's, a, it, 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 it's debatable that God had ever heard his voice. We cannot go and have these fleeting encounters with Jesus where we are like those in the crowd, there was a lady in the crowd who reached out and touched Jesus. What? Hey, hey, who touched me? But if you read that story, the Bible says there was a throng pressing Jesus, bumping Jesus. He was like in a, in a big crowd at a concert, just like this. People bumping him this way, and that somebody touches him. Who touched me? What are you talking about? Every man and his dog has been touching you. Oh, no. Somebody reached out and touched me with the touch of faith. Concentrated. Faith. Listen, faith is a powerful thing. Did you hear about this? They, they built a building in England not very long ago. A beautiful new building, remarkably. If you look in London, stodgy old London, 
there's some wonderful new architecture there. It's, it's who'd have thought? They built this building, got in some hotshot architects, I mean big-name architects. There was a little problem. People would park their fancy cars in the street outside the building and come out to find parts of their car had been burned. How did this happen, people said. Across the street, there was a restaurant. Even the floor tiles were being burned up. What in the world? They realized the building was the culprit. The building had been constructed in a certain way so that at a certain time of the day, it would, it would reflect the rays of the sun. Now, there is sun in London. You've been there maybe, and you were saying, London, that shouldn't be a problem, not London. But they've had sun in London. And every now and then, the sun would shine. It would catch this building and like a micro, like what, what, that's not a microscope. It's a, what is it? A magnifying glass. You go and you, 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 you see that cartoon, right? Of the scientist, he's looking at the rare bug that appears once every 200 years. He burns it up because of the That's what was happening. You see, the sun was shining all around people. Nobody was being offended in any way. But when that sun was caught in a certain way and focused, man, it was, it was so much more powerful. When our faith in God is focused, not a nebulous whatever faith, but a faith that lays hold on the righteousness of Christ and claims it not presumptuously, but claims it as one's own. There is power there, for there is power in the living Christ. Power. John had told the people gathered, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you can look to Jesus, look upon Jesus. He is your righteousness, and Christ is your salvation. Today, friend, I want to encourage you. Look to Jesus. Forget your troubles and your woes, your weaknesses and your failings. Look to Christ. I, I just need to hit pause. I, 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 I fear saying some of the stuff I've said. Nothing radical, but I've said more important than theology and more important. I'm not downing that stuff. Don't you dare put words in my mouth I didn't speak. Don't do that. All of that is important. But ultimately, it will be a curse to you if you stand in the judgment with theology and without Christ. A curse. For to whom much is given... Of that person, much will be required. It has been said that the hardest battle anyone will ever fight is the battle against what? Self, that's right. You know that battle against self? That's not just referring to your struggle not to take another plate of gatto. That's not just referring to you unable to push back from the table when somebody comes around with grandma's lasagna. And offers you more. You're thinking, oh man, I'm having a battle against self. That may be so. But let me suggest that if that's the intensity of your battle with self, you've already got one foot on the sea of glass most likely. If that's as bad as it gets. You know what I see? As I look around, and maybe as I look within, for too many people, the white heat of the battle against self is a battle against looking at one's own weaknesses and convincing oneself that one is never going to be good enough for heaven. Some people look at their sin and then they are convinced that God could never save them. If you're thinking like that, then you're looking in all of the wrong places. 
If you say, I have fallen again, God could never save me, your problem is that you are self-centered. It's not humility that says, God couldn't save someone like me, I'm certain. It is selfishness. For when you say, I have sinned again, surely God couldn't save me. You are not looking and living. If you looked, you wouldn't see a Savior with a stick or a Savior with a taser or a Savior holding back a Rottweiler bearing its teeth. You would see a Savior with his arms outstretched. He would be saying, look, I have engraven thee on the palms of my hand. You would see him standing at God's right hand, interceding for you. You would remember that Paul wrote that God, Jesus rather, ever lives to make intercession for us. You wouldn't be looking within and saying, poor, poor, pitiful me. You might mourn, but Christ said, blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted, and you find comfort in the arms of Jesus. Your sin must never push you away from Christ. It must propel you towards Christ. Lord, save me. I need you more, not less. You must, for look at me. I need to be clean, and you can clean me up. It is a very, uh, there's a word for it, a very deceptive form of selfishness that causes one to look at one's own weakness rather than look at God's great strength. Christ is our righteousness, always. When we sin, we don't go off to a corner and retire and lick our wounds and say, well, that's how you treat people. It's not how God treats you. Jesus says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look to Christ. Look and live. Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 13.1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. That fountain is Jesus. That fountain for sin and uncleanness. Praise the Lord for Jesus today. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know how that verse ends. What more could God do to convince you that you need to be running towards Him and never running away from Him? What more could God do to convince us that He wants to save us? And in that same book, Zechariah, there is a sublime story. The story of Joshua, the high priest. He is described as a brand plucked out of the fire. But he is also described as being uh, wearing filthy garments. Filthy, there's a word. And God says... Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. Now listen to the wording. I have caused your iniquity to pass from you. I will clothe you. I will clothe you with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord stood by. Notice what happened. God did the doing. He is a filthy man, but I will clean him. What was Joshua to do? Can you tell me? What was Joshua's part in that transaction? They didn't even ask him to take off his dirty clothes. You stand there. I'll do the rest. Come on now. That's powerful. Joshua was asked to stand and do nothing. That's what he was asked to do. Well, not exactly nothing. Almost nothing. But I guess the difference between nothing and almost nothing is very significant. Joshua was asked by God to stand there and not fight. Joshua was asked to stand still 
and allow God to do what God wanted to do. Joshua was asked, Joshua, stand there and surrender. Be there and yield. Don't fight back. Don't make this difficult. It isn't. You just stand. I'll do what needs to be done. Joshua stood in surrender. And we know how the transaction went. God did the work. Joshua yielded. God worked with power. Joshua surrendered. Joshua's role was simply to accept what God wanted to do for him, not to resist. Ours is to yield, to cooperate. God's is to do. If we can learn to get out of the way and let God be God, then we've learned something important. God said, a new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Who's doing the doing here? God. And God is asking us to yield that he would work. The serpent lifted up in the wilderness represented Jesus. That was a likeness of a destroying serpent, and Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The image couldn't help anyone, but it was to lead the mind of the believer to the salvation provided by God. That thing also served to remind the people it was their sin that had got them in this fix. But in yielding to Christ, they would be safe and they would be saved. It's ours to look and live. But too often, it's like looking into the sky to see the stars on a cloudy night. I remember 1986. Do you know what was significant up there in 1986? That's the last time Halley's Comet appeared. That's right. And I wanted to see Halley's Comet. 1986, I was about one year old. And I wanted to see Halley's Comet. I looked up in the sky, you know, and I was amazed how easy it was. I looked up, and there was this little dot with a tail, and it was, seemed to be moving across the sky. I thought, wow, that's great. I, I, I looked away, and I looked back and found it again easy enough. Then I realized that everywhere I looked in the sky, I was seeing little dots with little tails. There was a whole sky full of Halley's Comets. No wonder I found it so easy to find. They were everywhere. There was too much competing for my attention. You might not be able to see Jesus because of the background noise, because of the distractions. I guess it's you might not be able to hear his voice because of the background noise. You know, I used to be able to see just about anything. But then there was a vast conspiracy that was got up. And suddenly, every printer everywhere in the world started using smaller type than they'd been using before. <laughs> I was amazed. How could that happen? All of them. The guys who operated the teleprompter in our studio, they started using smaller words, smaller type in the teleprompter. I would read the thing and just say the wrong word altogether. Do you need us to make that font bigger? No. Nope. No. Nope. Do you need us to bring the prompter closer? No. Before long, they made the font bigger and they brought the teleprompter closer. My daughter came to me just the other day. She showed me something that was fascinating to her. She said, Daddy, I want you to have a close look at this. I took it and I did this. She said, No, Daddy, a close look. I turned to Shannon and I said, Shannon, 
This is a close look. We don't see like we used to see some of us. We just don't. We have trouble seeing Jesus sometimes, and that's deadly. In the wilderness, there was only one thing that was going to save those people, and that was a clear look at Christ. There's only one thing that will save us now, and that's seeing Jesus. And having our hearts melted, when you see Jesus, He will draw you. He will draw you. And then you've got to fight Him off if you don't want to be saved. And when we've looked and when we've lived, we will then lift Him up so that others can see Jesus and so that others might live. There's a promise for us in the Bible, many actually. Jesus said, He that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. That deserves to be said again. He that comes to me, she that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know, I could preach all morning about how the big problem in this world is sin. But I'm going to say right now that the problem is not sin. How can that be the problem when Jesus has died for our sin? The problem has been taken care of. The problem is beautifully enunciated in John 5 and verse 40 where Jesus said but you will not come to me that you might have life that's the problem sin he died for that that's done that's taken care of but if we are outside of Christ the death of Christ does little or nothing for us in Christ everything There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. I want to share two statements with you before we are done. They are powerful. The first one is from Christ's object lessons, and it says, When we submit our hearts to Him. Now, that's what the following words are predicated upon. When we submit to Him. There it is. Our heart is united with His heart. Our will is merged with His will. Our mind becomes one with His mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. This is what it means to be clothed in His righteousness. Submit, that word's a powerful word, isn't it? And I've about worn out page 668 of The Desire of Ages. But I reckon as long as I've got breath, I might as well just keep on going with it. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy keep returning to that theme. Keep returning to that theme. And if we consent, He will so identify Himself with our thoughts and aims. He will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with His will that when obeying Him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. How about that? The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing His service. Highest delight. You thought nothing could beat hitting a hole in one. Well, this can, doing God's service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Somebody better say praise the Lord. 
through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us if we consent. And I would suggest to you this morning that if you will look, you will consent. If you look, who will you see? Jesus. If you look, you'll see the healer, the lover of the lost, the seeker of the disenfranchised. Let me tell you this. A fellow spoke to me in an evangelistic series and he said, I know everything you're teaching. I know it. I used to teach it myself. He was now a very lost man. His wife said, can you help? I said, I talked to the man. I said, here's something I'd like you to do. Go to the Bible. Pick a book, one of the Gospels. You pick, you decide. Start reading from the beginning. As you read, look for Jesus. That's all. Look for him. And when you find him, write down what it is you see. That's all. And then when you figure you've read enough, quit reading. But look back over your list. Ask yourself who you have determined this Jesus to be. And then ask yourself if you can possibly live without him. That's all. That's all I ask you to do. Several days later, his wife was walking out of church. She brushed right past me without looking, weeping. I was not full of hope. It was the daughter who spoke to me. You'll never believe what happened to my father. He did what you said. He opened up the Bible and he began to read. He looked for Jesus. He wrote down attributes, characteristics. He stopped. He read that list and he said to himself, I cannot possibly live without that man. Back to faith in Christ. We'll see him in heaven. How is it with you today, friend? I encourage you to look and live. That's how it works. By beholding, you will be changed. Let God work that change in you now. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, can it really be so simple? Thank you that it is. Take our hearts, for we cannot give them. Keep them pure, for we cannot keep them for thee. Save us in spite of ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. Mold us, fashion us, raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through our souls. This we pray in faith. In Jesus' name, please say, Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.